On Wednesday night, Milo Yiannopoulos stopped by University of California at Berkeley to do his shtick. Leftist protesters, joined by a large contingent of anarchist rioters, promptly gave him everything he could ever hope for. A riot, complete with violent destruction of property, large objects set on fire, and Yiannopoulos supporters beaten in the streets. It was a vicious and disgusting display of just how fascist many on the campus left had become. A few thoughts. First... The campus left has been engaging in this sort of fascism for at least a year. Not every campus leftist group engages in this sort of violence. I spoke at Berkeley last year, no problem. But a shocking number of campuses have experienced this sort of fascist anti-free speech garbage. Yiannopoulos has been at the receiving end of these sorts of receptions at campuses dotting the country. And the riots aren't really about Yiannopoulos. They're about the very concept of allowing someone on campus who the left considers radical. Last February, I was met with a near riot at Cal State Los Angeles. At Penn State, students tried to break through locked doors to disrupt one of my Speeches. I was banned from DePaul in the aftermath of a student disruption against Yiannopoulos and told I would be arrested if I set foot on campus. Jason Riley of the Wall Street Journal was disinvited by Virginia Tech before finally being allowed on campus. So this stuff is happening all the time. The academic left, second of all, has prepared the way for a lot of this campus fascism. Why is all this happening right now? Well, because the campus left has built up a pseudo-intellectual bulwark around such fascism. They've told students they deserve safe spaces. Areas in which their ideas are not challenged in any way. They've forwarded the culture of microaggressions, which urges students to see any speech they find offensive as a form of aggression to be countered by other aggression. Here's NYU professor Jonathan Haidt on the phenomenon. He says, The recent collegiate trend of uncovering allegedly racist, sexist, classist, or otherwise discriminatory microaggressions doesn't incidentally teach students to focus on small or accidental slights. Its purpose is to get students to focus on them and then relabel the people who have made such remarks as aggressors. As a professor at Cal State LA posted on his door before my speech there last year, quote, the best response to microaggression is macroaggression. This line of thought actually encourages evil. As Professor Roy Baumeister writes in Evil Inside Human Violence and Cruelty, hypersensitive people who often think their pride is assaulted are potentially dangerous. Even when a neutral observer would conclude no serious provocation occurred, it is still important to recognize that, in the perpetrator's view, he or she was merely responding to an attack. Colleges churn out and reward these oversensitive people. Third, riding against speakers you consider radical, it helps those speakers, you idiots. Okay, Yiannopoulos' shtick, it relies on opposition. The clips from his speeches are all about triggering members of the campus left, which, by the way, is the easiest thing in the world to do. He relishes this publicity. Like or dislike Milo, and I am certainly no fan if you know anything that I've said about him, his provocateur shtick only works if he provokes a response way worse than that which he's engaged in. When the left shuts down his speeches, when they riot, when they engage in actual violence, when they pepper spray those who come to hear him and hit them with metal poles, all they're doing is legitimizing Yiannopoulos in the public eye and making him the victim and selling him lots of books and making him lots of money. President Trump has weighed in via Twitter. He says that he will withdraw federal funds from UC Berkeley if they can't maintain free speech principles. That's actually appropriate. Spray painting kill Trump on walls, smashing ATMs, assaulting people. That is not appropriate behavior in any civilized society. And for those who are doing the spray painting and the smashing and the assaulting to proclaim that they're anti-fascist is patently insane. Forget Yiannopoulos. The issue is the left, and they are out of control. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Okay, tons to get to today. In just a few minutes, we're going to be having on former assembly person from the state of California, Mike Gatto. He and I got into a Twitter spat a few weeks ago. I'm going to have him on to discuss that. So, uh, we'll talk capitalism. We'll talk Berkeley. Good guy, and we'll be having him on in just a couple of minutes. We're also going to be talking more about what happened in Berkeley and what that means. Plus, Donald Trump was at the National Prayer Breakfast. So what better time to talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger's ratings on The Apprentice? Yes, really, this is the world in which we now live. We'll get to all of that. But first, we have to say thank you to our advertisers over at Lyft. So, 
If you are somebody in need of a ride and you want a safe ride, a clean ride, then you need to use Lyft. My wife uses it all the time. She's a doctor. That means that she's coming home at all hours of the evening. Last night she was coming home midnight. That means sometimes she's too tired to drive after having helped birth babies for the last 12 hours. And so she uses Lyft. And if she trusts Lyft, if I trust Lyft, you should trust Lyft too. The reason is because all of their drivers are fully vetted through a 10-point safety standard, including criminal background check and DMV background check. You're going to get around quickly and safely. All the Lyft drivers are rated after every ride, so only the best stick around. You're not going to get some creeper in an old beat-up van, in a rape van picking you up. That's not how Lyft works. It's actually going to be somebody, a nice person in a decent car picking you up. You can tip in the app as well, which leads to happier drivers. It means the drivers are going to be more friendly to you. And thanks to Lyft, you never have to worry about drunk driving or about driving tired or about driving unsafe or, or honestly, uh, even about owning a car. If you live close to work, sometimes it's cheaper to actually just use Lyft everywhere than it is to own a car itself. Right now, Lyft is offering our listeners a special deal. You get three free rides right now, up to 10 bucks each, so $30 value when you enter promo code Shapiro. So check that out, lyft.com, promo code Shapiro, and it's Lyft. Download the free Lyft app and use the promo code Shapiro in the payment section, and you get that $30 off. Again, they're the people that I trust. They're the people that my wife trusts, and most importantly, they're the people I trust with my wife's safety. So if I trust them with that, then you should trust Lyft as well. Uh, They are the best in the business. Okay. All right. So here we are. Another day, another violent outburst. Um, And this is becoming more and more common across the country. As I say, I've, I've been in the middle of these things. Actually, half our staff has been in the middle of these things. A lot of our staff was there at Cal State Los Angeles when there was a near riot last year when I spoke at Cal State LA. And the question is, what's driving this? Because the truth is, the vast majority of people who are showing up to protest these things have never heard of Milo. They've never actually seen anything Milo's done or seen anything that I've done or read anything that they've done. They've sort of read headlines from Salon or Slate, and that's about it. They don't actually do their research. If, you actually, if they actually wanted to stop Milo, the easiest way to do it would be to ignore him. Milo is sort of like the doomsday monster. The more electricity you shoot at him, the more he absorbs it and, and expands. If you actually ignored Milo, he'd probably go away. But the fact is that the left can't ignore Milo because they have decided that in the name of their safe spaces, everyone they disagree with must be banned. And so you have the mayor of Berkeley coming out beforehand saying that hate speech is not welcome in, in his city and that marginalized groups being attacked by people like Yiannopoulos, that's something that, he does, that he's not good with. The only marginalized group in Berkeley are the people that the mayor doesn't like. Okay, Berkeley is a haven for a lot of folks. I mean, there are a lot of people from a lot of different political aisles. It's obviously left. But, I mean, that is the place where you let your freak flag fly, fly right? I mean, that's, that's the, basically their motto. So the idea that you know, there, there's people coming in who are going to disagree with that and, and they have to be shut out, that sort of has bled down. Unfortunately, it's, it's, bled, it, it's now coming from the top. So I think that the election of Trump has made the left in many ways fully insane to the point where civilized behavior is becoming less and less common. And this, of course, does not apply to everybody who's a liberal. It doesn't apply to every Democrat. But there is this strong strain that's building up in the more extreme circles that say that violence is okay. What they say is somebody's a Nazi, violence against Nazis is okay, Therefore, I can attack X, right? So this is why the other day there's a, a neo-Nazi, you know, he's a, a white nationalist is probably fairer, named Richard Spencer, who was punched in the head on the street while he was doing an interview. And so the internet lit, uh, the internet lit up with, is it okay to punch a Nazi? And the answer is no, it's not okay to punch a Nazi. It isn't. Because by the same logic you can punch a Nazi, you should be able to kill a Nazi, right? If you're violating someone's bodily integrity on the basis of their political viewpoint, you are doing something uncivilized and wrong. But... There's an actual argument over, can you punch the Nazi? Okay, so a lot of the left says, great, Richard Spencer got punched in the face. That's just terrific. And then they say, well, Milo is Richard Spencer. And then they say, well, Trump is Richard Spencer. 
And they say, well, Shapiro is Richard Spencer. And pretty soon it's bled down to Mitch McConnell is Richard Spencer. Anyone I disagree with is Richard Spencer, and Richard Spencer is Hitler. Therefore, I can use violence against them. Sarah Silverman tweeted today that she wants basically a violent uprising. She says fascists should get overthrown. We'll, in, we'll use the military to overthrow. Wake up and join the resistance, all caps. Once the military is with us, fascists get overthrown. Mad King and his handlers go bye-bye. An articulate statement from one of the world's most brilliant political commentators, Sarah Silverman. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and she's not the only one who's saying this sort of stuff, unfortunately. We talked the other day about how the Screen Actors Guild, David Harbour, got a standing ovation for saying that you were going to punch people that you disagree with. Joy Behar, just yesterday, she was, she was on The View. And on The View, Whoopi Goldberg's already labeled Trump the Taliban. So here's Joy Behar on The View saying that Democrats ought to bring a, a rhetorical gun to the knife fight. I think their job is to look at what's being brought to them. That's how it played out. That you know, the Democrats always go to a, a gunfight with a knife. Yeah. Let them go with a gun this time. Yeah. I mean, I'm well, sick of it. I'm sick well, of it I being okay for the, the goose, is, but not the gander. The problem Why? is the, the people are the only ones who suffer. We need to keep moving forward. It, well, how you fight the fights that are good. Like, pick your battles. If you really don't like this candidate, fight against him. Okay, so the point here is not that she actually means pick up a gun, but this sort of violent rhetoric has, has become much, much, much more common. As I say, that's not a good thing. Once the violent rhetoric becomes more common, once you label your political opponents the enemy to actually be hurt and everything is on the table, then that means you're going to get a lot more of this sort of activity. Now, I do want to say one quick thing about the Berkeley students. Not the, uh, my guess is that if you look at the footage of these, these riots, the rioters don't look like Berkeley students. They don't look like kids who are lefties at Berkeley. It looks like those kids are standing around and then a bunch of anarchists came in from Oakland or from, or from Berkeley or from San Francisco to make trouble. They look like WTO protesters from 1999 smashing windows and looting and, and doing this sort of stuff. I don't want to blame all Berkeley students for the actions of a few, but the problem is this sort of mentality is spreading. Well, joining us now on the program, I'm pleased to welcome former assembly person from the state of California, Mike Gatto. I think he's going to be a statewide candidate for office soon, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what are you running for now? Well, I haven't Mike? decided yet. I think politics is a little bit up in the air right now. Okay, so he's running for governor. So Mike Gatto <laughs> is, uh, is, is a longtime assembly person uh, from the state of California. He and I got into a Twitter spat the other day, and that's why I'm having him on. So I think a good place to start is with what's happening in Berkeley. What do you make of the, of the hubbub of the chaos of what is a riot that happened in Berkeley last night? Well, first of all, I was in office when you were at Cal State LA last February, and I want to apologize. I want to start by apologizing on behalf of the state of California for what you went through. I appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, nobody should ever... When they're on a publicly funded campus that is paid for by taxpayer dollars, have to have their free speech quelled. Uh, you could argue maybe it's different on a private campus, but that was a public campus where people sought to clamp down on your free speech. The state of California owes you an apology. To the extent that I can do it for the, on behalf of the whole state, well, thank I you. I appreciate yeah. it. And it's not your job to do it on behalf of the whole state, obviously. Right. <laughs> you didn't do it. Uh, I, I only like to put responsibility where it lies, but, but I appreciate that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that the first place to start is that this is why I like having people who disagree on the show. I'm going to start doing this a lot more often now that we can have guests. Um, and uh, I think that that's fun because it's, it's fun to have the discussion and it's, it's really negative what happened last night. So what is, so I won't, let's, before we get to what we were spatting over on, on the internet, which was, which was a lot of fun. I, I do want to get to it cause it's kind of a kick. Um, I, I want to ask uh, you, Assemblyman Gata, what do you make of how the, how should the Democrats treat the accession of, of, President Trump. So a lot of people seem to be going kind of nuts over this. Sure. What do you think is the best way for Democrats to, to deal with this? Because obviously, uh, I think that the sort of extreme rhetoric and tactics, not sure this is going to be productive. Correct. I was talking to a veteran uh, Democratic Congress member from D.C. Uh, yesterday, and he said, you know, think about it. Everything that Trump has done so far in office is designed to appeal to rural Pennsylvania and uh, rural Michigan, all the key areas of the swing states that Democrats lost. 
And then by lighting cars on fire in Berkeley, I'm not sure that we're going to win those hearts back. <laughs> well, I appreciate the honesty. And I think that obviously I think the Democratic Party could use more people like you in positions of power saying that because it seems like the Democratic Party is moving in a more extreme direction uh, by embracing some of the candidates they're talking about for the DNC chairmanship. There was that event a couple of weeks ago where the DNC chair candidates were saying things like, as white people, we have to sit down and shut up, and, and we have to we just have to listen to black people. It's my job to shut up the other white people up. That, that doesn't seem to me geared toward winning the white middle-class voter in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, or Wisconsin. Uh, so, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about your, your broader worldview, because the reason that we, I invited you on in the first place right. is because we got into this fight, as I've referenced a couple of times on Twitter. And the reason that that came up is because I wrote a piece about uh, one, of the, one of the things that, a uh, talking point that folks on the left have been pushing for quite a while is this idea that the people at the very top of the income spectrum have way more money than everybody else, that people who are in the 1% own as much wealth as the rest of the world combined, that the top 60 people own as much wealth as as 3.5 billion people. And basically, I wrote, so what, right? The people at the top, unless they stole it from the people at the bottom, why is this a problem? And I talked specifically about Bill Gates, who's now about to become the world's first trillionaire, apparently. Uh, and uh, and I said, you know, there there's hundreds of thousands of people who have worked for Microsoft. They create a product that millions of people buy and makes their businesses better. What what's the issue here? And you then proceeded to tweet this. Uh, so this is the tweet on feudalism. Uh, so your screed is a gross oversimplification. It's so much more polite when we're in person. Your screed is a gross oversimplification too, akin to medieval mentality of kings and nobles protected us in battle. So nobility is awesome. Did I write that? I you did, did actually. Sorry, sorry about that, Mike. But <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you'd like to explain where that comes from. Well, why do you think that? It, I, and I asked you, I asked you. So what makes Bill Gates a medieval feudal sure. lord? Well, first of all, I never gained as many Twitter followers, or I never got my 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 behind spanked as much as when I tried to troll you. So <laughs> Your followers are very, very um, enthusiastic. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, but um, but the point I was trying to make is this. So I'm a traditionalist. I believe it or not, there's a democratic traditionalist. Um, I know that our founding fathers believed in small everything. They believed in small government. They believed in small concentrations of wealth. They thought that if we had the return of nobility in this country, that we'd be in a really bad place. We'd look like those countries in Europe that people had left we would have this great concentration of power. It would start to seem like nobility. And that's what that reference was. And I do believe that there are times in history where the wealthy have more and they start to look like Russian oligarchs. And nobody would disagree that Russian oligarchs are kind of like nobility. They can control government. They have the power of life and death in certain towns and in certain provinces. And that's not good for our American way of value. Well, you and I, I agree on, on the idea that oligarchy is bad, and obviously, right. but I'm not comparing Bill Gates to a Russian and oligarch. I'm not right? saying so, he is too, but, but there is a saying that all great fortunes come from some crime. And, I, don't know, think that's, I don't think that's, that's true, though. Unless you can actually prove the crime, it's a little bit of a slander to, to suggest that, that people are, are engaged in crime just because they're wealthy. There's, there's a lot of companies that when they start out, the regulations are not quite there yet, and they act in a regulatory vacuum. And in many cases, they're taking resources that you could argue belong to society, and they are exploiting them to their wealth. Well, uh, unless you're talking about like people actually going into the commons and drilling for oil in areas that's not right. owned, for example, uh, then you know what, what resource do corporations like Google exploit or corporations like Microsoft exploit? It seems to me that their employees are some of the happiest people on the planet. It seems to us that you, know, you and I have great technology because of companies like this, and, and seeing wealth as an indicator, a red flag for something criminal has occurred, number one, sort of lets people who are poor off the, off the hook if they actually commit crime, and number two, says that wealthy people are actually the ones who are, who are criminals, when it seems to me that a lot of the people who are wealthy are wealthy specifically because they're engaging in lots of voluntary mutual transactions, which is the way our economy works. If it's not voluntary, you and I are on the same side, right? Sure. If, if, if somebody's actually exploiting somebody else, we don't disagree. But if, if somebody 
is not exploiting somebody, then what's the problem? So you and I are both against the redistribution of wealth. But my point was there's many ways to redistribute it. So Rand Paul and Ron Paul both have said to audit the Fed. And I've supported that. I think the Federal Reserve, which is it's a quasi-governmental agency. It's appointed by the president. uh, the, The governors are appointed by the president. I think that their policies have favored those who own lots, lots of stocks and those who own lots of property. Sorry, now, in favor like like the like the Pauls are of a return to the gold standard. You know, I think the gold standard for a long time served our country just fine. I'm actually I, in favor of return to the gold standard I, as well. You know, it's it's real money and it, it's tied to something that government can't create. So, so why are you a Democrat? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there are some Democratic traditionalists out there, and I think I am one of them. I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with being a small government Democrat, and I think there's also nothing wrong with saying that the Federal Reserve's policies have benefited. Those who own, when you're lending money at next to nothing and you're inflating these bubbles, the people who tend to own those resources benefit from it. So in weird, in a weird way, that's a redistribution of wealth too. No, I, I, I totally agree. It's redistribution of wealth by government, and, and, right. and as I say, I'm, I'm very libertarian on a lot of this stuff, and that is keep the government out unless somebody's yes. rights are actually being exploited. Now, I don't want to hit you over the head with your tweets, but okay. I'm going to hit you over the head with your tweets. That's so fine. here's, so here's one more. Uh, this is, this is you talking about inherited wealth, uh, and again, things get dicey right. on Twitter in a way that they don't when we speak to each other. Other right, face faces. Right. I'm curious what the great grandchildren of the wealthy invented it to uh, wealthy invented to deserve it. A smarter Ben Franklin railed against nobility. So the the implication here seems to be that the founders were against inherited wealth. Benjamin Franklin did speak openly about the estate tax. He liked the idea right. of an estate tax because European nobility was not quite the same thing as American capitalism producing people who are wealthy. There's a mercantilist system in Europe where the government actually gave charters to specific friends of the government. It actually, looks a lot more like what. Uh, presidents of both companies. stripes have been doing actually lately, right. where you know it looks like the green jobs program or like Trump giving favors to a particular company, which it looks like corporatism. That's what old school sure. European nobility looked like. And in fact, Ben Franklin, when it came to his own distribution of wealth at his death, Ben Franklin actually handed virtually all of his wealth to his children. He gave a thousand pounds to the city of Philadelphia, a thousand pounds to the city of Boston, and that was it. Right. So it wasn't like he got he he liquidated all his wealth and said, "Kids, you're on your own." Right. Uh, so are you again, Are you in favor of the idea of a high estate tax taking lots of money away from people? People who have already been taxed on that money because we don't want their kids having it. So, so I do take, tend to take the Ben Franklin approach. Thomas Jefferson was more of an extremist on the estate tax. He didn't think that people should inherit much at all. Ben Franklin actually wrote that he thought that the average middle class person should be able to pass on their home, even two homes, three homes to their kids. But he did think that their really, really big estates should suffer some type of estate tax. And I think the middle class should not be subject to an estate tax, but I think the very, very, very wealthy, the high end, there should be some estate taxes. Otherwise, you just run the risk of our society devolving into a bunch of Paris Hiltons. She's beautiful, she's talented, but you know, it was like her great grandfather founded something useful, and she didn't do much. And that's what that tweet was uh, was relating to. Well, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm no Paris Hilton fan, but I also right. don't think that I have the right to take away Grandpa's wealth just because I don't want Paris Hilton to be doing Carl's Jr. commercials. Yeah, but 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 that is a little bit of postmodern stuff that you might criticize if the left was saying it, because because. Government does have the right to draw lines. When we elect the government, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, we are saying, please draw the lines. I think an estate tax would be much more fair than an income tax. I, I think, I mean, don't it, forget. So do you want to remove the income tax? If you're in favor of removing yeah. the income tax Listen, in favor of a, our of a small sur- estate tax, then our maybe country, I'm with you. Yeah, our country survived for the first 150 years on primarily three taxes. There was a sin tax. It was the whiskey tax, right? right? There, there was estate taxes and there were tariffs. Mm-hmm. And I think if we could come back to some sort of system where we relooked at our tax code and said, hey, this is more fair. Uh, we're going to break up large estates. We're going to tax sins. And we're going to rely on some sort of uh, tariffs to, punitive, to, to penalize the worst abusers of slave labor in third world countries. 
I think that would be a better system than what we have now. Okay, that's that's interesting because you know, the, the, look, I think it's immoral to tax people twice. So if you're going to have an income tax and then you're going to steal money that I've already paid taxes sure. on, one of my, I mean, you, you have children, I assume. Yeah. I mean, is, how many kids do you have? I have two and a third on the way. Okay, well, congratulations, that's exciting. So I have two under three, and the and one of the reasons that I work really hard is because I would like to pass on lots and lots of money to my children yes. so they don't have to work so hard, which is part and parcel of the American dream. Is not just I work hard, I get ahead. It's I work hard, I get ahead, so my kids don't have to work quite as hard to get ahead. And when it comes to inherited wealth, I think there's this this vast misnomer that the people who are the wealthiest in our society, all of them inherited their wealth. And actually, when you break it down, that's not really true. Like 35, according to, in 2012, there's the Forbes 400. And 35% of the, of the Forbes 400 was born poor or middle class. 22% were born upper middle class. That means 57% were born either poor middle class or upper middle class. 11.5% inherited more than a million dollars. 7% inherited more than 50 million, so that would be Paris Hilton. Right. Uh, and 21% inherited enough money to just stay on the list, right? So, so that's- So tax the 7%. I mean, when I got the tweets back from you, with, with our exchange from your followers. I mean, a lot of people said, hey, I'm just a middle-class guy. Do you want to take my wealth? The answer is no. I do not want to take that wealth. I'm the same way. I work very hard so that my children will have a better life. And by the way, I, I'm not a career politician. I, I really have had jobs, and I have a job <laughs> now, and I'm working very hard. But, um, but I do think we do run this risk of returning to this, this era of nobility if we don't break up the vast, vast fortunes. It's that 7% or 6% you talked about. Yes, yeah, to me, I don't think that those fortunes should be broken up. I think the key is to protect the system itself so that, that those fortunes can impact government. And that means you know, having a smaller government in total. Because the problem is once you get to the point where the government can confiscate a state wealth, you know that the government is so corrupt that there are going to be some estates that somehow escape, and there's going to be some estates yeah, but, that get they hit. they confiscate sales tax, they confiscate income tax, they confiscate so many things. We have to have tax. We have to pay for the crumbling roads in LA that are never paved. We have right, to pay why for punish the me just because I made a lot of money? Well, it's not punishing you because you made a lot of money. What, what it's trying I mean, to sort do sort of is you're only hitting me if I'm really, really wealthy. Yeah, but I mean that. Listen, that's that's how that's how a lot of tax codes are. I mean, I know they, they suck. Yeah. Well, they do. They do. <laughs> they do. But I mean, but if you think about it, the, the wealthy guy who buys a Rolls Royce, he pays more in sales tax than, than someone like me who doesn't own a right, car. Right, but he has or, a choice to buy that car, right? I mean, right. They, that, right. That's a little bit. That's a little bit different. Now you're talking yeah. about you just look at the bottom line. You say, okay, you made more than seven million. You made you know two million. The seven million guy. Maybe you cut it off at a billion dollars. But but the point is. I just think I'm a traditionalist, and I think our founding fathers believed in this system, which was, yeah, you know, you let the you let the person pass on three, four, five houses to their kids. That's fine. You let them pass on their cars and their bank accounts. But maybe the person who starts to look like a Russian oligarch because they've got so much power and so much money, we probably don't want that in America. And by the way, this type of this type of people ignoring this, politicians in power ignoring this for so long, is why Donald Trump won all these Midwestern states, is because he actually talked to people and said, look, I'm going to try to return good jobs to, to your class. I, I think that's right. I think it's also, I think it's ironic that you cite Donald Trump as an example of that, because Donald Trump is actually part of that 7% I, yes, he is. a crap load of money. All right, well, th thank you so much for stopping by. It really is a pleasure to have you, and uh, and it's always fun to have a cordial conversation with somebody with whom I disagree, so thank you for, for the time, and thanks for coming in and Thank you Mike Gatta. Thank you. And look out for him. He's going to run for governor, even though he says he's just considering it. So make sure that you keep an eye on that. Well, we have to say thank you to another one of our sponsors. These are sponsors over at CISO. So if you love comedy, I mean, if the political system isn't enough comedy for you and you just love comedy and you want more of it, CISO is the place to be. CISO is, is streaming content. CISO is acclaimed original series. It's hand-picked classics. It's hours of stand-up specials. No commercials. Completely ad-free. You get a month for free right now when you go to CISO.com. 
CISO.com, CISO.com, and you use promo code Shapiro. So if you check that out right now, then you get at least one month for free. Actually, it's two months for free now, I guess. So it's two months for free with the promo code Ben at checkout. That's CISO.com, promo code Ben. My wife and I have been watching one of their shows called Harmon Quest, which is really funny. It's sort of uh, it's sort of making fun of the the um, Dungeons and Dragons crowd, and it's it's. It's pretty funny, so you can check that out. They have a lot of original series. They have a lot of old content. Uh, they have old episodes of The Office from Britain, which is really funny. They have a lot of British comedy. Uh, they have all of the SNL, back from when SNL was good and not just a Trump attack vehicle. Check it out at CISO.com, promo code BEN. And uh, it is fantastic. As I say, it is it is normally $3.99 a month. You get the first two months for free. You can cancel it anytime if you don't like it. So give it a try. I promise you won't be disappointed. Okay, so... As you say, uh, the the situation in Berkeley is really ugly. I want to show you some of the footage from Berkeley, so that you, so that folks know what we're talking about. Last night, um, there's here here's some of the the people shooting off fireworks at public buildings last night at Berkeley. <laughs> And you can see it's it's black block. I mean, that's what they call themselves because they wear all black and they're they're basically terrorists. And the police, where are the cops in all this? What are, what are the cops doing? I have no idea. This is the experience that we had at Cal State LA as well, by the way, is that the cops were basically told to stand down because they didn't want to promote violence. They didn't want to have a violent clash. So instead, you let the, the rioters run roughshod. Uh, there's more of this here is them shooting off some flares. Alrighty, so you can see it got really, really ugly last night. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Plus, we have the mailbag coming up. But in order for you to see that, you have to go over to dailywire.com right now and become a subscriber. You can watch the rest live, become part of the mailbag. We're going to do live mailbag questions today. Yay, that's very exciting. Whoa. So we're going to check that out today. Go to dailywire.com, $8 a month. We'll get you a subscription, $8 a month, and then if you get an annual subscription, then you get a free signed copy of my book, True Allegiance. That deal is ending soon, so check it out right now at dailywire.com. We are the most popular conservative podcast in the nation. Okay, so the situation in Berkeley, obviously, was really, really ugly last night. There was a guy who was punched last night. Uh, there was uh, mass protesters tearing down fences last night. Uh, here's a little bit. Here's a picture of the damage to the auditorium that was done last night. You can see they took fences and they rammed it through the window at Berkeley. Just insane. Uh, here is uh, some, a montage of some of the, the stuff that was happening. Yeah. Uh, no, I want you to get your shots. I'll find you. Okay. It looks pretty bad out there, obviously. Do these, do these look like Berkeley students to me? No, I think most of these people are outsiders taking advantage of the situation. There was some of that at Cal State LA as well. It is the job of the administration to make sure that free speech is still free at these universities. It's so funny. I saw people tweeting out things like, this used to be a free speech campus in the 60s. No, actually, Ronald Reagan had to send in tanks to Berkeley because they were occupying public territory and shutting down free speech in those areas. The radical left has not changed, and it will not change. Uh, and this is only going to get worse as time goes on because... Yeah, the, the, these folks are fully convinced that they have the right to use physical harm to, quote-unquote, resist 
free speech. And that's nothing new. It's something that we've been experiencing on campus for quite a while. And it really has very little to do with Milo. As I say, I think that very few of these people have actually ever seen Milo do anything. As you know, I'm not a Milo fan. I think Milo is not only a provocateur, I think that he stands for some pretty nasty things. Um, But that doesn't change the math here. And the math here is that they don't like Milo because Milo disagrees with them. And that means that he has to be shut up or shut down. And by the way, this is something we ought to be policing on both sides. It's not quite as simple as just the left wants to shut down free speech. If you're on the right and you think it'd be okay if somebody shut down CNN, that's also not good, right? If you were somebody cheering when Donald Trump said during the during the campaign that people who punched people during protests, he would pay for their legal bills, that's not good either. We need to all respect the idea that we can disagree and still not hit each other. I think obviously the violence on the left is much more prominent than the violence on the right. And during the campaign, the media kept trying to say that Trump was the true fascist threat to free speech at the same time his events in Chicago were being shut down by Black Lives Matter, which is utterly inane. Okay, so I want to get to, I want to have some time for the mailbag today. So let's do some stuff I like and then some stuff I hate. So things I like, we're doing Shakespeare this week. You can't actually find, you can find a DVD of this, but it's a little bit hard to find. Uh, There's a production of Hamlet that was just basically an empty stage production of Hamlet with Richard Burton as Hamlet. And he's too old to play the part, but Richard Burton is terrific in the role. And if you just think that Richard Burton, who married Elizabeth Taylor, was one of the sort of iconic Hollywood stars. If you think he was just a voice, watch him act. Here's him doing the to be or not to be seen from Hamlet. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing any. To die? To sleep? No more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished to die. To sleep. To sleep. The chance. To dream. Aye. There's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil? I mean, first-rate performance. Uh, The entire cast is really good. Uh, I I believe it's Alfred Drake who they have playing... um, who they have playing... Uh, Claudius. It's, it's, it's a very good production. Hamlet, you can get it online at Amazon. I think you can still get some old copies. Very, very good production. Although it's a little bit hard to watch and hard to see, uh, hard to hear a little bit. Uh, really, really first-rate stuff. Okay, so time for some stuff I hate. So, there's been a lot of hubbub in the last 24 hours that people have sort of been ignoring over, over Donald Trump's conversations with foreign leaders. So today, Donald Trump loosened sanctions on Russia. No big shock there. He was very warm toward Russia throughout the campaign. He also had a conversation with the Australians that was reported in two ways. One a little bit less wild and one super duper wild. So one was the Washington Post report. This was clearly leaked from the Aussie side. It was not leaked from the White House. According to the Washington Post, President Trump blasted Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull over a refugee agreement and boasted about the magnitude of his Electoral College win. Then 25 minutes into what was expected to be an hour-long call, Trump abruptly ended it. At one point, Trump informed Turnbull he had spoken with four other world leaders that day, including Vladimir Putin, and that this was the worst call by far. Apparently, he said this is the worst deal ever, talking about a deal between Obama and the Australians to take in 1,250 refugees from an Australian detention center. He said that he was going to get killed politically and accused Australia of trying to export the next Boston bombers. 
And then he tweeted, quote, do you believe it? The Obama administration agreed to take thousands of illegal immigrants from Australia. Why? I will study this dumb deal. Okay, so number one, I don't think he's going to study the dumb deal. I think that I think that Donald Trump just doesn't like the deal. And listen, it's fine for him not to like the deal. It's fine. Like, there's no reason why if Australia is taking in these refugees and sticking them in an island offshore, which is what they're doing, why should we have to bear the brunt of that? No real reason. I'm not even against Trump's basic premise here. What I do not understand, though, is why he would curse out the prime minister of Australia and then tweet out openly in order to create a rift with one of our closest allies on planet Earth and uh, and a group of people who are now under the, the sort of sphere of influence of the Chinese. It's just stupid foreign policy. Apparently, he did the same thing with Mexico. Uh, according, to the, uh, according to the Washington Post, he touted his political accomplishments in a conversation with Enrique Peña Nieto. Apparently, he, he said that, uh, again, he talked about his election accomplishments and how he won this historic victory because he's a narcissist. And then he told Nieto that he was going to pay for the wall uh, again. Uh, and then he said that if they couldn't take care of their drug problem, we would send troops down south to take care of their drug problem, uh, which is, a, uh, which is uh, it seems to me, a very, very terrible idea. Last time we went into Mexico, it was not the world's best move. Uh, th- there's a reason why in the, in the um, it's the Marine Corps, right? From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, Montezuma's in Mexico. It's talking about the, uh, the attempt by Woodrow Wilson to put troops in, in Mexico. It didn't end up making Mexico a wonderful place, as it turns out. So the actual conversation, according to CNN, was a little bit less bad. But I, I love that Trump talked about this today openly. All he does is watch the media. So according to, according to Trump today at the National Prayer Breakfast, he said, when you hear about the tough phone calls I'm having, don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. They're tough. We have to be tough. It's time we're going to be a little tough, folks. We're taken advantage of by every nation in the world virtually. It's not going to happen anymore. It's not going to happen anymore. All right. Okay. Well, we'll find out, right? I mean, okay. I, no, nothing else to say here. You know, this does not seem to me like uh, like activity calculated to reach the best end, but we'll find out. Maybe this brash brand of foreign policy is destined to end with, with great conciliatory language between Trump and Australia. Who knows? Also, this, this, actually, this one bodes a little more ill for, for Trump. There is a, a report in Reuters about the, the raid that ended in the death of, of the, the Navy SEAL. So Trump did something I thought that was fantastic yesterday, which was he flew over to uh, the, the Air Force Base, and he secretly did it, and he went to meet the body of a Navy SEAL who was killed in action from SEAL Team 6, I believe. Uh, he was killed in a raid on a branch of Al-Qaeda in Al-Baida province and in Yemen. And, but here's the problem for him. According to, according to Reuters, they say that the operation was thoroughly vetted by the previous administration, and the previous defense secretary had signed off on it in January. That's what the White House says. But according to U.S. military officials, they said Trump approved his first covert counterterrorism operation without sufficient intelligence, ground support, or adequate backup preparations. As a result, the attacking SEAL team found itself dropping onto a reinforced al-Qaeda base defended by landmine snipers and a larger-than-expected contingent of heavily armed Islamist extremists. The Pentagon instead directed all characterizations to U.S. CENTCOM, uh, and they said, we only ask for operations we believe have a good chance for success. Do I think that Trump actually didn't do his homework on this thing? I don't understand why it's Trump's job to do his homework on these things. I mean, I assume that the defense came and said, here's the operation, here are the risks, let's do it or let's not do it, but it's up to defense to actually do the intel work, the ground support, and the backup preparations. It's not Trump sitting there directing troops like he's playing risk or something. So what this really says, what this story really says to me is that there are a lot of folks in the government establishment who want to see Trump go down, and they are 
destined and determined to try and undermine him by leaking to the press. And this is just another example of that. Okay, time for some mailbag because we've been cutting it short the last couple of weeks. I want to go to the mailbag a little bit early today. So let's, uh, so let's do the mailbag. Okay, here we go. Michael writes, hey, Ben, longtime follower here. To what extent does the near 50-50 political split in the country contribute to our heated, polarized, vitriolic discourse? How do you think thing would be, things would be different if, say, 70% of the country wanted conservatism and only 30% were liberal snowflakes we all love to hate? Obviously, if there were broad consensus on issues, there would be a little bit less vitriol because in order for there to be real vitriol, you have to believe that you have a chance of winning. I think that the country is so evenly divided right now that people feel like every little action can turn the entire future of the country. If you feel like you're at razor's edge, if you feel like you're at an inflection point, you're likely to be much more passionate about your politics than if you feel like, okay, I'm destined to lose or, okay, I'm destined to win. In fact, it's one of the reasons I think Trump won is because Trump's people perceived that this was a 50-50 country and that this was a crucial inflection point. And Hillary's people figured it's not a 50-50 country. We have a 60-40 split. If I don't show up to the polls, it's not going to matter. So Trump did a good job of convincing his folks that he had a chance to win, in spite of people like me saying he didn't, by the way. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, he won. So that's, I, I think that that demonstrates full well that, that sort of an even split in the political sphere creates more passion, and more passion tends to come along with more vitriol. That's especially true when people feel like they're being governed by 45% of the population as opposed to 55% of the population. I do think that the popular vote matters in that sense. All the people on the left feeling very frustrated today perhaps they would have been just as frustrated if Hillary lost the popular vote. I have a feeling that they would feel a little bit less justified in their activity. Caleb says, Supreme Hole Poker Shapiro, could the government create and manage for-profit businesses as a way to decrease government reliance on taxation? I feel this would be a better option than government subsidies. Okay, so uh, it's very difficult for the government to run a for-profit operation because the minute that the company starts losing money, they just go back to the taxpayer. The question is, who pays? For-profits run like for-profits because someone is afraid of losing their job. Someone is afraid of losing their money. But the government's never afraid of losing their money. If the government, the government can't go bankrupt. If the government goes bankrupt, they just print more money. If the government goes bankrupt, they just go to the printing presses and print more stuff. If I ran our business like that, you know how extremely nice this set would be behind me? I mean, magnificent. I mean, look at the set. It's, it's, it's a great set and all, but, but it would be like a magnificent $3 million set if I could just go in the back room and print money and not care if we, if we lost money on the show or not. But the problem with government is, again, when you have an infinitely deep pocket because it's somebody else's money, it's going to be very difficult for any government-run business to be a for-profit. It's possible but unlikely because, again, the forces that drive for-profit just are not there. Seamus writes, hey, Ben, do you expect Trump to reverse Obama's orders on transgender bathrooms in public schools? Uh, yeah, I think he'll probably reverse that executive order. Uh, he might do that quietly. Uh, I'm, I'm, honestly, I don't know what he's going to do. I'm, I'm out of the prediction business. Uh, after, after the last year and a half, I'm basically out of the prediction business. Uh, I don't think Trump cares about it. I think that Trump has been very split on, on the transgender bathroom issue. This is a guy who said that he would let transgenders into his bathroom at Trump Tower. And when he was asked about North Carolina's anti-transgender bathroom bill, uh, he, he suggested that there was a stupid law, basically. So I don't know what he's going to do on that one. Uh, I, I wish I did, but I, but I don't. It depends how it depends how much he needs to to please his base, I suppose. There's a lot of politics going on, uh, and Steve Bannon is in charge of sort of the politicking. If he feels like he needs to please his base, he'll revoke that ban. If he doesn't feel like he needs to please that base, he'll leave it in he'll leave it in play. Kristen says, reading the biography of Muhammad as well as the Quran, Islam objectively seems like a violent religion. How do peaceful Muslims reconcile their faith with their holy text? So this is a great question. 
yes, if you read the text of Islam, there's a lot of talk about violence. Muhammad was a war leader. Now, if you read the Old Testament, there's a lot of violence in the Old Testament. I'm not going to say that I think that they're equally violent because I don't think they're equally violent. But I will say this. I care, there's a reason that on this program I don't get into discussing Islamic theology. The reason is because I care a lot less what people believe, what people think, than what people do and how their thoughts impact their actions. So you can believe that the sky is made of butter. And as long as you're a civilized person who's doing good things for your neighbors and yourself, then I don't care. It makes no difference to me. So when it comes to Islam, the big problem in Islam is there's never been a reformation in Islam. There's a reformation in Judaism very, very early on, uh, you know, or it was not necessary in the first place. But biblical Judaism was never applied according to kind of the strict text of the Bible in some ways. Like when it says an eye for an eye, Judaism has always held that an eye for eye doesn't actually mean that we're going to poke out your eye if you poke somebody's eye out. The, the Jewish interpretation has always been, as long as Judaism has, exists, as has existed, that if you poke somebody's eye out, you have to pay the monetary value of the eye because that particular verse is in the section talking about monetary damages. Islam, by contrast, holds that verse very, very literally. Right? So it's, it's all about the interpretation of religion. The problem with Islam right now is that it is interpreted in its most strict, violent sense by a hell of a lot of people, by a large percentage of people. That same is not true of Christianity or Judaism. The problem with trying to delve into the texts of the Quran is that for every verse you cite, they come back at you with, well, it says that the Bible says that you should wipe out Amalek, or Amalek uh, in English. Yeah, that's true. The difference is that Jews don't go around wiping out whole groups of people. So the, I care much more about the behavior than I care about the religious theology behind the behavior. Uh, Jared says, if you could, would you travel back in time to kill Hitler? Yes, of course I would travel back in time to kill Hitler. Absolutely. Why not? What would be the problem? Now, if you're saying would I kill Hitler as a baby, no, I would forcibly remove Hitler from his childhood home as a baby and, and hand him over to a Jewish family to raise. That's, that's, that's what I would do. I don't think babies ought to be killed. Um, but I do think that if you could go back in time to 1937 and shoot Hitler, yeah, you probably do it. Although, who knows who takes over at that point, right? I mean, that's, this is sort of why I like Man in the High Castle, because it does demonstrate that Hitler was not alone in the Reich. Uh, Hudson says... Hey, Ben, love the show. Should natural resources like oil and natural gas be nationalized? If no one put any effort creating them, why should a select few enjoy the profits rather than every citizen? Okay, so Hudson, the reason why they should not be nationalized is because whenever you nationalize oil, it becomes a payoff to a small oligarchy. Look at Venezuela or Russia. When you nationalize the oil and energy industry, it always ends up being handed off to somebody to administer, and that person ends up becoming extraordinarily wealthy. Plus, once you do that with the oil industry, then the government gets to decide what the rate at which oil is sold is. Should oil be high price or should it be low price? They get to manipulate the entire economy through natural resources. Plus, the oil means nothing except for the private person who actually went and drilled for it. The oil doesn't mean anything except for the company that went and actually did something about it. And that's why it's important that you actually have private companies out there doing it. The reason the oil industry exists right now is not because a bunch of governments decided to drill for oil. It's because a bunch of private companies decided to go drill for oil in the middle of a sandy desert in the middle of nowhere. Horatio writes, hi. Hi, Horatio. How are you? Ben writes, what is the best way to handle the refugees coming out of Syria? Has there been, have there been studies showing that refugees do better when they stay in their country or any negative effects for coming to new countries? The best way to handle the refugees coming out of Syria is to find countries that are Muslim uh, and, that are, and that are willing to take them in. Uh, I think it's a, a very silly idea that people who have grown up in an area that has no sense of Western civilization can immediately be transplanted to Western civilization and then thrive. 
If that were true, it would only exist in a world where Western civilization were in muscular fashion assimilating people. I say muscular, I don't mean forcibly assimilating people. I mean not providing them social benefits to live in small enclaves where all of their worldviews were reinforced by a multicultural ethos. That's what I mean. If you got rid of that, then you can assimilate a lot more people. The United States did this for centuries. Then the welfare system came about. It turned out assimilation is a lot harder when people get a check, even when they're not speaking the, the national tongue, even when they don't believe in the national value system. So, you know, the best move, I think, here would be to, to help integrate Syrian refugees into other countries. Honestly, I don't understand. Iran is, is backing Assad. Iran supposedly wants to be our friend now. Ha, 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 ha. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't Obama put pressure on Iran to accept Syrian refugees? Right? Why, if, if, if Obama thought what was going on in Syria was so bad and Iran's our new friend, why not pressure Iran? Turkey's already taken in one to two million, I think, Syrian refugees. That seems to me a better solution. Unfortunately, a lot of the Muslim world likes to keep refugees in prison camps, basically, so that they can use them as a political tool against the West. That's what the Palestinians have been about for the last, 50, the last 70 years. Recognize the fact that the Palestinians since 1948 have been living in refugee camps in Arab territories, literally, for 70 years. And that says something about the, the whole notion of the Islamic Ummah that's going to support their brethren. How about you start by getting rid of the refugee camps and assimilating the people who are the supposed refugees? Mike uh, Mitchell writes, Hey Ben, my fiancé and I pray before every meal. This past weekend while at a football party, she brought me my food, and as she was walking back to get hers, I asked, are we going to pray? And she said yes. A known leftist was at the party, and she looks at me and says, Are you effing kidding me? I politely explain we pray before every meal. My fiancé returns and we do our thing. As I look up afterward, the girl is staring at us in disgust for what we just did. Why can someone be offended that I take 15 seconds to thank the Lord for blessing me? Furthermore, she is married. Why do people who not believe in God get married when the whole point of marriage is the Lord now recognizes you as a couple? Thanks, Mitch. Yeah, well, the, here's, here's the truth. People who are on the left really don't understand that they are the result of a Judeo-Christian value system. They just sort of live within that purview without acknowledging where that framework came from. This is why a lot of atheists who are, who are smart understand that without the Judeo-Christian worldview, atheism doesn't exist. Secularism doesn't exist. The Renaissance doesn't exist. The anti-religious movement doesn't exist without the tolerance of Judeo-Christianity and Judeo-Christian civilization. You don't see that sort of tolerance in Islamic civilization. You know, why are people offended by this stuff? Because people down deep, I think. There are a lot of people, not everybody's offended. The people who are offended, they feel a sense of shame when they are not doing what you are doing. They, they feel like you are trying to shame them or show them up, even if you're just doing what you're doing, which says to me that down deep, there are a lot of people who acknowledge that the religious lifestyle actually has a lot of merit to it, but they feel insulted that somebody is showing them up that way. Okay, I want to end the week on an up note. So I saw this the other day and I just thought it was hysterical and we're going to show it. This was, somebody did a, a video production of If the Sandlot, you know, the great movie, which I think I've recommended on the show. If the Sandlot were made today, here's what it would look like. Oh, no! It's easy when you play with a bunch of rejects and a fat kid, Rodriguez. You shut your mouth, Phillips! What'd you say, crap face? I said you shouldn't even be allowed to touch a baseball. Except for Rodriguez, you're all an insult to the game. Come on, we'll take you on right here, right now! Come on! Right yeah. here, right now! We play on a real diamond porter. You're not good enough to lick the dirt off our cleats. Watch it, jerk! Shut up, idiot! Moron! Scab eater! Butt sniffer! Puss licker! Fart smeller! 
You eat dog crap for breakfast, geek. You mix your Wheaties with your mama's toe jam. Yeah. You bob for apples in the toilet, and you like it. You play ball like a girl. What are you, some kind of Nazi? <laughs> Dude, what the heck was that? What? Everybody knows girls aren't as good at baseball. Whoa! What did I say? Well, what did I say? You know the rumor that women can't play baseball as well as men is just a product of patriarchal society? Amen. Yeah, but like they can't naturally throw as well as like Whoa. a guy. Oh, hey! What's going on here, Porta? I thought we were having like a, like a friendly banter and then you went all Ray Rice with it. Come on, Ham, you got this, dude. Just none of that chauvinist stuff, all right? Just keep it gender neutral, yeah. you know? Whatever, you, you square. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're an L7 weenie. Oh, <laughs> yeah, bro. Yeah. You're a bigger jerk than Smalls. Oh. Yo! <laughs> And that is our culture now, because we're full of stupid people. And it, that had occurred to me last time I saw the movie. That did occur to me that now everybody makes this big deal. There's a whole series based around the idea that a woman can throw a baseball as fast as a dude, which is ridiculous. Okay, so again, this is the politically correct world in which we live. The good news is that if you showed this video at Berkeley, apparently they would literally burn down half of California. So... Good times. All right, well, we will be back here on Monday. We'll be broadcasting from abroad since I am speaking uh, at, a, at a couple of colleges next week, and we'll bring you the updates from there. Uh, we'll see if there are any riots or not, but we will, we will keep you updated. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, let's say you were a stormtrooper, and you were enjoying a nice meal of roasted Ewok in the Death Star mess hall. Well, all of a sudden, you hear the voice of Alec Guinness saying, use the force, Luke. The next thing you know, the entire place is going up in flames around you. And it's at this moment you really wished you had life insurance. Make life insurance part of your financial planning this year. Start shopping right now with Policy Genius. Find the right policy and protect your family. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from top companies and find your lowest price. Luckily, Policy Genius helps you compare your options from top companies and their team of licensed experts. Well, they're on hand to help talk you through it. No added fees. Your personal information remains private. It's super satisfying to check life insurance off that to-do list. A good life insurance plan can give you peace of mind that if something happens to you, God forbid, your family will be able to cover mortgage payments, college costs, or other expenses. Life insurance through your workplace might not offer enough protection for your family's needs. It's not going to follow you if you leave your job. Head on over to policygenius.com right now. Save time and money. Give your family a financial safety net with Policy Genius. Head on over to policygenius.com slash Shapiro or click that link in the description. Get your free life insurance quotes. See how much you could save. That's policygenius.com slash Shapiro. Hey, 